It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Psalm 73. We're actually going to look at uh, several scriptures this morning, but uh, we're going to spend time at the end in Psalm 73, and in a moment I'm going to read verses 25 through 26, just two verses, but wonderful, glorious verses. You know, I, I was thinking this morning, I'm talking to you about the, the seductive sin self-pity. And I was thinking about the irony of the fact that uh, I've been ill and you can tell my voice is not that great, uh, but that's actually perfect. Um, We are called to serve in weakness. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he boasts in his weakness, not in our strengths. And the very call to ministry that we're called to reminds us that our weaknesses don't keep us from ministry. In fact, it's the very ground of it. As we serve through our weakness, He gets the glory and not us. Please stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. We're looking at Psalm 73, and I'm going to read verses 25 and 26. Hear these verses knowing that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, we know the true story of the world. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these glorious words. This declaration of faith from a man who struggled and labored to get there. Lord, help us see this this window into what it means to struggle in the right direction and to to break through our tendency for self-pity and to land in the only place there is to land on You and Your grace and Your promises. Oh Lord, help us to see clearly because we see Jesus. Lord, we pray it in His name for His glory and for our eternal good. Amen. may be seated. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, English pastor at Westminster Chapel, says, it's one of the greatest curses in life as a result of the fall. Elizabeth Elliot, wife of the martyred missionary Jim Elliot and author said, it is a deadly thing with the power to destroy you. Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf and ended up being a well-known author, said, it is our worst enemy, and if we yield to it, we can never do anything wise in this world. Oswald Chambers, a devotional writer, 
says, it is of the devil. John Gardner, who was former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, said, it is easily the most destructive of the non-pharmaceutical narcotics. It is addictive. It gives momentary pleasure, and it separates the victim from reality. Pastor Tim Keller calls it, the soil in which sin grows. Sociologist Oliver Wilson said, what poison is to food, it is to life. What is it? It's self-pity. Now we hear those things, and one of the problems is that we don't tend to take self-pity that seriously. Leads to death. It is a poison. It destroys. It is the most dangerous non-pharmaceutical narcotic. We tend to think, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't do it, but I mean, everybody does it. There's really nothing you can do about it. Self-pity is just a part of what it means to to live, and yet that's not what the Scripture says. Self-pity, what is it? Well, first of all, we have to understand what pity is. And, and here's the, the danger in where we can get so easily confused. Pity is a good thing. It's a virtue of showing sympathy and understanding and compassion to others because of their misfortunes. We are so thankful that it says that Jesus was moved with pity. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus showed sympathy toward those who were in need. And so having a right sense of pity is a good thing. We look out and we are not cold and callous about what we see, but we are moved by what we see because we care about the the needs, the burdens, the misfortunes of others. But it's when pity turns inward that there is a problem. You see, when pity turns inward, it actually keeps us from showing the pity that is a good thing. Self-pity blocks out and eclipses the pity that we are rightly to demonstrate in the world. Self-pity can be defined like this. Self-indulgent pity for oneself and a preoccupation with one's own sorrows and misfortunes. You see, self-pity is not merely a response to difficulty and circumstances. It's a way of thinking that always puts self at the center of every situation, every circumstance, and every interaction. And therefore, it expects and creates negative interactions, a negative understanding of circumstances, a a negative understanding of encounters, whether it's reality or not. Because that's the way it sees the world. It's self-indulgent. This inward focus on ourselves is something we are to be delivered from in light of the gospel. The the word self-pity doesn't appear in the Scripture. That's sort of a modern way of putting it. 
but the idea does throughout, which I'll point out to you today. But one of the places, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, there's a contrast made there. And the contrast is between godly sorrow, godly sorrow is turned outward. Godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7 means your sin has been exposed and you have looked to God and you have a sense of godly sorrow that's not turned in on you. It's understanding that you have offended God and therefore godly sorrow, it says, leads to repentance. But it contrasts that with worldly sorrow. If godly sorrow is turned out, and thinks about how what you have done relates to God first and leads to repentance, worldly sorrow, in 2 Corinthians 7, is turned in. And it says it does not lead to repentance. What does worldly sorrow do? It's not oriented toward God. It's not oriented toward others. It's oriented toward yourself. And so the fact that you've been exposed in some way makes you sorrowful, but it's in a way that you just feel sorry for yourself. You don't respond to God because it's not about God, it's about you. Worldly sorrow is turned in on itself. That is self-pity. That's the way it works. You feel sorry for yourself. Let me, put it like, let me put it like this. When you are mired in a sense of self-pity, you turn all of life into a courtroom. And you're a lawyer, you're a litigator. You're always looking for evidence. Some evidence that, that you were slighted, that you're not getting what you deserve, that somebody doesn't think about you in the way that you should. And so every interaction with somebody becomes a, 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 an opportunity for you to judge the situation. Are they interacting me in a way that they should? Or, or why did they say that? Or why didn't they say that? Or why did they do that? Or why didn't they do that? Why do they have that when I don't have that? Everything is litigation. Everything is looking for evidence to justify the reality that you feel sorry for yourself. You have this sense of constant worldly sorrow that is a constant sort of, poor me. I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm being cheated in this life. Why, Why do others treat me like that. They don't treat other people like that. And why don't people see what I do? They, they see what other people... You, you see? Constant litigation. And by the way, if that's what you assume you will see, then you will find plenty of evidence for it, whether it's there or not. Because what you will do is you'll take every one of those interactions and you will see them in the worst way possible so you can get evidence for the fact that you indeed are being slighted. Let me put it to you this way. Pride's face is self-pity. Humility's face is thankfulness. These things don't go together. They can't coexist. Pride stamps out humility. Humility stamps out pride. 
Self-pity stamps out thankfulness. Thankfulness stamps out self-pity. They can't coexist. These things are, are at war with each other. But pride's face, the way pride manifests itself, is always in a self-referential sense of self-pity. Humility always manifests itself in thankfulness. Why is this? Because at its core, self-pity says, I am not getting what I deserve. And by the way, that's true, just not in the way the person intends it. If you're drawing a breath right now, you're not getting what you deserve. What we all deserve is judgment, the very moment of our rebellion. But self-pity says, I am not getting what I deserve. I deserve more than what I'm getting. And that leads to an insecurity about everything in life because you're getting cheated. You're getting overlooked. You're not getting what you need. And that produces somebody who either generally just passively kind of gives up and mopes through life or self-pity also looks like bravado. The, the person who's always got a harsh comment or the loudest person in the room. Why do they do that? Because of their insecurities, because they feel slighted. And because they feel slighted and overlooked, they respond like this. Self-pity isn't always quiet, though it often is. But both of those are rooted in the same thing. Humility's face is thankfulness because its constant reframe is, I have gotten far more than I deserve. And therefore, there is a security. If I've gotten far more than I deserve, then I don't need anything out of today to validate my security. I've already got it. But if I'm not getting what I deserve, today is on trial to find out whether or not I'll get it today. The battle with this sin begins at the beginning. We're going to quickly move through because I want you to see how this works, but... I'll be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 really quickly, but I want you to see this. Self-pity fixates on what you don't have. If we want to understand self-pity, we go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the very first sin in the world God created. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, what God actually says is you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Satan says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, which is adding to what God said, lest you die. Now notice the picture here. The picture here is of amazing provision. There's the, the, the garden and there's this, this bounty of things to eat and partake of. I mean, you look around and God says, you, you can have all of it except for one tree. Notice how Satan works. 
So Satan's going to point at that tree. But what about that? Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, questioning God's word. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is holding out on you. God doesn't want you to have goodness. God doesn't want you to have the blessing of being like Him, which is total irony because God uniquely created a man and woman to be His image bearers. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Do you see what happens here? All of the trees, all of the bounty, but the fixation starts to be on what you don't have, that particular tree. Satan says, look at that tree. Look at what you're missing. The other trees don't even matter if you can't have that tree. That's what he's saying. If you can't eat of that tree, the fact that you can eat of the others don't even matter. You don't even think about them. Look at that tree. It's because God is holding out on you. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. You're missing out. You're not loved. You're not cared for. God's not really providing for you. And you will know he's not providing for you because you can't have that particular tree. You're not appreciated by God. Now, notice what's happening here. What Satan is doing is saying, stop thinking about what God has said. Think about yourself. Look at that tree. Don't you deserve it? I mean, why not? If you want it, if you desire it, why would you not have anything that you desire? If you can't have what you desire, you are to be most pitied. That's the way it works. A self-centered loss of perspective. But we do that all the time. Not just with things like this, but in all our interactions. We, we focus on that thing that we don't have. Well, why didn't they say this to me? Why didn't they give me this? Why didn't they respond to me in that way? We don't focus on the, the bounty by the way, this is the way all advertising works, right? It, I mean, you may have a hundred uh, cleaning things in your house, but you don't have this stuff, right? Forget about all that other stuff. If you don't have this, you don't have anything. That, that's the way it all works. It's appealing to this this sort of this sort of way in which we we just want to have what we don't have. And it's this, this desire that, that is destructive, not only of ourselves, but our relationships. Guess what? If, if all you fixate on is what you don't have and you ignore what you do have, you will spend the rest of your life feeling slighted. And you'll be like the person who has 
clothes stuffed in their closet. They can't even open it. And they say, I have nothing to wear. I don't have a thing to wear. What they mean is, I don't have that one thing at this moment that I want right now. By the way, I should have it. Self-pity fixates on what you don't have. Uh, We see this in all kinds of places. uh, and, And we see how quickly we can go from sort of mountaintop experience to to the lows of self-pity. Think of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. It's one of the most incredible uh, places in the Bible where you have this dramatic scene where he takes on the prophets of Baal. 850 prophets of Baal, and they're cutting themselves. They're doing incantations. Nothing happens. Elijah, in the name of God, mocks them. He calls down fire from heaven. He defeats the prophets of Baal. Here is this High point of high points. And then we get to 1 Kings 19. And Jezebel threatens him. And one person threatens him. And he goes into hiding. And he's running. And he pictures him. He's sitting under a tree feeling sorry for himself because Jezebel is out to get him. And while he's sitting under that tree in 1 Kings 19, he says, I'd be better off dead. And then he says, I'm no better than my father's. Two things here. A fixation on what he doesn't have, the approval of Jezebel. You're like, what? But but what happened and God did this? No, but in that moment, what matters is what he doesn't have. But notice what he also does, which leads us to the next thing. He compares. I'm no better than my father. See, Eve goes on to give birth to Cain and Abel. And we see this. Self-pity thrives and feeds on comparison. God ignoring comparison. Self-pity thrives and feeds on comparison. Go over to Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 7. We, we saw the fall into sin. We saw this, this fixation on the, the one tree that they were forbidden to eat of, the, the ignoring of the bounty, focusing on what we don't have. Now we see this, this, focusing on, this focus on comparison, the very next major sin that's recorded in the Scripture. In the very beginning, we see these things. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for, means he looked on with favor, Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He did not look on it with favor. So so what does Cain do? It tells in verse 5, So Cain was very angry... And then notice what he says, his face fell. Self-pity pouting looks the same in five-year-olds and adults. You know what it means here, face falls. I've got one that goes, and pictures of me as a child doing the same thing. The fallen face. Cain was very angry. You ask yourself, why is Cain angry? And we find out he's angry at Abel. Why is he angry at Abel? 
Why is he thinking about Abel? The offering was offered to God. If there's a problem with the offering, Cain has a problem and issue with God. Why is he looking around? Why does it matter that Abel's was accepted? Abel's offering was a matter between him and God as well. Because that's the way self-pity works. It fixates on what you don't have, and it looks around in comparisons because self-pity is rooted not in a consideration of God. Self-pity is rooted in a consideration of me, and I try to get my identity not from God and what he's done for me and how I can honor him, but I try to get my identity from where I stack up in comparison to others. And by the way, you're never going to stack up great. You just aren't. There's always somebody better than you at everything. There just is. And sometimes you get this high, you think, man, I'm really good at this. I'm better than almost anybody I know. And all of a sudden, you're not. Hotshot athlete signs at the major college, and guess what? He's just another guy on the team, right? A friend who lives in New York City and says, you know, you have this person who plays an instrument, they're the the best in the world, I mean the best in their area at it. So they move to New York City to make it big in the instrument, and they get off the subway, and the guy sitting in the subway uh, begging for change is better at it than them, right? This is just the way it is. But we aren't to get our identity from comparing ourselves to others because we aren't to be curved in on ourselves. This world is about God, not about us. We are not at the center of it. Notice what the Lord says beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Genesis. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you see the warning here? Sin is crouching at the door. When you do not do what you're supposed to do, and your response to that is self-pity, that is a sin that opens the door to other sins, and those sins can devour you. The real issue for Cain is to be God. But self-pity doesn't care about what it has. It cares about what it doesn't have, and it also cares about what it has in comparison to others. They just want more. The person mired in self-pity just wants more than the next person, more than their neighbor, whether that's praise, possessions, applause, honor, all of those things. Lloyd-Jones here says, Self-pity sees insults where they are not meant. And where indeed they very often do not exist. It's a hypersensitivity. Always afraid somebody is going to detract from us. Feeling somebody is trying to, to, to do so at all times. Feeling hurt, feeling wounded. And in turn that leads to self-protection. Self-protectedness. We spend a lot of our time protecting ourselves. Even trying to avoid the possibility of something that might harm us. It becomes quite a great business always protecting this delicate, hypersensitive self at the center. What kind of way is that to live? Comparison makes others our problem. Comparison can't celebrate and value the success and differences of others 
because comparison is always trying to get self-validation. So other people are a tool and an instrument, not image bearers to be loved and served. This is why self-pity is a fertilizer for other sins. By the way, the next thing it says here, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Self-pity is a fertilizer for other sins, even murder. Now, between the feeling of self-pity and murder, there's countless other sins that we could name along the way, and all of them are destructive. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 puts it like this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You desire. How do you know this? You compare what you have to what others have, and you don't think you have enough. You covet. You covet what? You covet what others have. This comparison leads to all these other sins. Self-pity is a fertilizer for all kinds of sins that end up destroying your life and harming your relationships. But what can be done? That's the issue. Psalm 73. Quickly. Self-pity produces a vicious cycle that must be broken. What we've said so far clarifies the fact that self-pity is a theological problem. You focus on what you don't have and you compare yourself to others. Why is that a theological problem? Because in doing so, living in God's world under His authority, we are saying something about Him. Think about it. Think about if, if my children focus on what they don't have uh, instead of what I provide for them. You've got a whole house full of things to play with. You've got toys and all of this. And there they are. They're sitting on the couch. They're sulking. Uh, uh, why are you sulking? Why are you pouting? Because I don't have this. Yeah, but you've got these other things. I don't have this. You haven't provided me this. I'm going to say, what a sweet child. What a brat. Get over yourself. So when we say, yeah, all those other good things in my life, but it's not like this. It's not like I want it. What are we saying about the goodness of God? He's not providing for us well. Or or, or what about comparison? You know, I started early on when I travel a lot with eight kids, but I purposely, when I travel, bring home gifts, but not for everybody. Because I want to try to train the children that doesn't get the gift to be excited for the one who does. It was not always effective. (laughs) But gave a good opportunity to try to address that issue. Right? Yeah. Comparison. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah you, got, you did this, for, but you haven't got me this. And they got this. Why, why, why can't I get this? And, and you look at that and you say, you are, you are acting like I am not a kind and gracious father. You act like I don't do enough for you, like I'm not caring for you and providing for you. Yes, yes, yes. When we act like this, we are acting as though God is not a kind and gracious father. He's not done enough for us. 
He is not enough for us. Eugene Peterson says, We might be the most self-pitying populace in human history. Feeling sorry for yourself has been developed into an art form. The whining and sniveling that wiser generations ridiculed with satire is given bestseller status among us. I knew a family didn't have a lot of money. They, they saved up. They, they bought their daughter a, a car when she was 16. They were so excited to give it to her. They, they brought her outside, eyes closed, you know, like the videos, and, and open your eyes. And she immediately started crying and saying, I didn't want that car, and ran into the house. That's horrifying, isn't it? That's often the way we are. I didn't want this life. I didn't want it to be like this. I didn't think it would be like this. I thought I would at least get this. You see, that's why self-pity is the opposite of thankfulness and why they can't coexist. Here in Psalm 73, the, the psalmist confesses his feelings that he feels slighted, that he's not getting what he deserves, while people who don't deserve it are getting more than they deserve. The self-pity was, was draining all the joy from his life. I'm not going to read all these to you, but let me give you a few of them. He says, uh, For me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That was a good thing at this time. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, they don't have the troubles that I have, and I try to live a good life. Look at them. Pride is their necklace, he says. Violent covers them. They, they, they're, they're prideful. They trample others. Their eyes swell out through fatness. It's a comedic sort of image here of the fact that they have so much abundance. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak mouths. He goes on and on. These people are living the good life even though they are doing nothing for God. And that has driven me to self-pity. And he goes on to say, it's caused me to question whether or not I've done all I've done in vain. To summarize in verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. He says, verse 13, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence for all the day long? I've been restricted, rebuked every morning. He's, he's eaten up with self-pity. He, he, his thoughts have turned him in on himself. He is mired in this vicious cycle. He's miserable, unhappy. Why? Because of what he does not have and the comparison to others around him. So how do we break the cycle? Look up with me beginning in verse 16. We're going to go through these six things like lightning. Number one, gather with God and His people. Look at verse 16 and the first part of verse 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until He went and He gathered in the sanctuary of God. When He gathered for worship, He heard something there that changed his perspective, changed his view. God's people and God's word can change your perspective. Just think about it. Just showing up in worship is a reminder that there is God's house with God's people. It broadens your perspective. 
There are promises that people hold to. And so a, a first priority in breaking this cycle is gathering with God and his people, reminding yourself that this is bigger than you. And also you see all kinds of people, and some people are going through it, and yet they're there and they're singing, and I could say so much more. But secondly, you turn in your judge's robes and trust in the judge of heaven and earth. Look at the second part of verse 17 down through verse 20. Then I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms or like empty images. I discern their end. Here I am thinking about what they have here and now, but now I've gone to, 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 to God's house and my perspective has been raised. Now I see, no, th- this is about eternity. This is bigger than uh, about the moment. And so now I see that you are the one who judges all things. That you are the one. I, I need to quit judging everything as if my temporal judgment in this moment means anything. You will keep your promises. You will make all things right. In the end, the wicked will not prosper. In the end, all things will be made right. Thirdly, acknowledge self-pity as sin. Look at verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's not soft on himself when he's confronting his self-pity. He says, I was like an animal. I, I, just, I just reacted. I Just instinctually, I self-protected. Instinctually, I turned on others. Self-pity is, is a seductive sin because it's often passed off as personal humility. Oh, the reason I'm... I'm like this is because I'm just a humble person or a sensitive person or a meek person or a kind person. It's not humility at all. It says others are the problem. You see, this is self-justifying comfort. I am right because I've been so wronged. It becomes an identity. I get my identity in the fact that I've been wronged. No, we have to call it what it is. It's a sin. It's rebellion. It's questioning the character of God. Elizabeth Elliot says, Self-pity is a death that has no resurrection. A sinkhole from which no rescuing hand can drag you because you have chosen to sink. Fourth, remind yourself of his constant presence. Verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. From beginning to end, where was God when when he was mired in the self-pity? He was there the whole time. He always is. He never moves. We need to stop saying, it should not be like this. Who says? It should not be like this. And then we should stop saying, when it is like we don't want it, where is God? He is right there. If you don't sense his presence, that's a problem with you, not with him. Look to him afresh and anew. What we want is his constant presence, and he is there. He is always guiding and leading. Then fifth, pray to God and meditate on his sufficiency. Here here we have a verse that can describe the goal of the whole Christian life. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of the rock of my heart and my portion forever. This is a glorious verse to memorize, to to bring back out when you get in the throes of self-pity. By God's grace, he got from where he was to here. And how did he do it? Through a process. You you have to counsel yourself. Sometimes you you have this, this way in which you've you got a habit of responding in self-pity. You have to tell yourself to stop it. And you have to go in and you have to beat truth into your head. Sometimes you just have to, 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 to fight. Yeah, and, and a scripture like this is a reminder of the kind of fight that we have to have. You see, this says that what matters is God. Even more than the fact that God forgives my sins, what matters is God. Even more than the glories of heaven, what matters is that God is there. That's what he's saying. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Nothing on earth I desire besides you. There's nothing on earth that I crave for my identity and that I need to be content in this life because I have you. Six, a summary and a response. You tell others of his gracious and glorious works. Look at verse 27, 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now, now, do you get this? Repenting of self-pity leads to seeing others with pity and compassion, and it leads to wanting to serve others. You are thankful for others, and you want them to hear about His glorious uh, grace, and you want to tell of His glorious works. You see, now others are not the problem. Others are an opportunity for you to point to this grace or you to celebrate the grace with together. Joni Erickson Tata, many of you know, author and speaker. She was young. She was paralyzed in a diving accident. I heard her say one time, you know, when it happened, I hated being paralyzed. But I also hated the suffocating self-pity that it had brought, that I allowed it to bring into my life. And so she said she cried out, Oh God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. And then she said there were years and years of digging out of the self-pity and becoming thankful. And it sounds a lot like the process we saw right there in this psalm. But understand this. We've got to stop having an emotion like self-pity we know is wrong and excusing it on one hand, but on the second hand, thinking that feeling bad about it in the moment is going to change anything. You have to fight. He gives a pathway on how to fight here. And you and I must take up the fight. Join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your perfect and precious word. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. And I thank you, Lord, that, uh, that the message that you have for us today is not ending at this moment, but it's continuing in the sign of the kingdom you've given And so, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, help us to continue to bring our thoughts about uh, this seductive sin that we need to push aside and help us to see how the table helps us to do just that. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.